Welcome to Changemakers with me, Katrina Oliphant, brought to you by Chrome Radio in association with the Monthly Barometer. This week's Changemaker is Mark Maslin, Professor of Earth System Science at University College London and author of How to Save Our Planet, The Facts. With COP28, the next round of the UN Climate Change Conference just around the corner, it's a timely reminder that the situation is urgent. To quote Mark, To save the planet and ourselves, we need to be on a war footing. We need to engage every part of our society in the battle against climate change and environment destruction. How to Save Our Planet has an unusual format. I asked Mark how the book had come about and what had inspired its unconventional style. His answer was not what I expected. But first, he told me about what Earth System Science involves and where his job takes him. I study the whole of the Earth system, including people. But really what I do is I look at climate change in the past, the present, and the future. That means I get huge latitude about what I do. So I work on early human evolution. I've worked on the deforestation of the Amazon. I've worked on the evolution of human societies. I work on climate models and future predictions. But it also means that I've strayed outside of academia. I set up a company 12 years ago called Resitec, which was an AI geoanalytics company before AI got really cool. And I work with a lot of businesses to try and help them understand the climate crisis, sustainability, and how to actually build and change their company to deal with those challenges, but also take those as opportunities. Through that, I spend a lot of my time communicating with people in general. And I got very frustrated a few years ago because I was writing worthy books. And so are friends of mine, Catherine Hayhoe, Michael Mann. These books are brilliant, but the only way you're going to change people's minds is if you hit them over the head with them. So I decided to try to think of something different, a different style of communication. And I was listening to a podcast to In Our Time, and there was Melvin Bragg chatting away about one of my favorite books, The Art of War by Sun Tzu. And I went, oh, this is fantastic. I think I've got a copy. Turns out I've actually got three copies, three different translations, because I'm such a geek. So I picked it out and looked at it, and I suddenly went, oh, wow. This is a book written 5,000 years ago in single sentences to tell people how to run a war. And they're declarative statements like, have more spies than the enemy. Do not put soldiers on hill with sun behind you. I went, what if I could write a whole book like this? And so I pitched to my agent how to save our planet, the facts. She did a double take and went, so you're not using paragraphs, just single sentences? I went, yes. She said, write me a chapter or two. And at first I went, I am an author. I do not need to write two chapters. She said, look, Mark, just do it write a chapter just so I can see the style. I ended up writing three chapters of the book, giving it to her. And then she went, oh, I see. Penguin bit her hand off. And that's how the book came about. And it's really an interesting book for me because you can read any chapter in any order. It's not a linear book. You can just dive in and grab some facts. I said at the beginning of the book, I said, look, I want this as a book that people can quote facts and quote statements down the pub, at a dinner party, or even in parliament. I can let you into a secret. Rishi Sunak does have a copy as a friend's father, who's part of the Conservative Party, gave it to him at one of the hustings. Unfortunately, I also know that he literally did this grab pass to one of his aides. So I'm not sure he's ever read it. 
This prompted me to ask why, and despite the extreme climate events of the past few years, there is still so much climate denial or climate complacency, including at government level. We are in a very strange period of time. In 2023, we've had heat waves in the USA, in Southern Europe, in China. Last year, we had floods in Pakistan that affected 30 million people. Last year in London, we had temperatures that hit 40 degrees Celsius in July. Now, many of us have experienced 40 degrees because we've been on holiday. But to put that in context of the United Kingdom, the peak temperature, so the maximum temperature in July, on average for the last 10 years, is 24 degrees. So we had a heat wave that was 16 degrees warmer than it should have been. We were predicting these sort of temperatures for Southeast England for 2040 and 2050. We've also got worrying stats about massive reduction in Antarctic sea ice, Arctic sea ice. We've had the warmest summer ever recorded. It's 0.6 degrees higher than any previous summer. We've had the warmest September recorded globally, which is about 1.9 degrees warmer than pre-industrial times. So we're having this huge set of evidence about climate change, but climate denial seems to be increasing. We had a quiet period, I'd say, in the 2000s and 2010s, where climate denial had basically started to drop off, partly because the media had actually realized that climate change major issue and therefore started to report it properly. We also have this huge increase in the groundswell of people who understand climate change at a visceral level. They actually get it in their bones. And that's the majority of the world's population, particularly young people. But because people are now saying, well, hang on, we should do something about this, suddenly there's a backlash. This is powerful fossil fuel companies and countries that rely on the petrochemical dollar. They have particular politicians in their pocket. And I'm going to use a quote from Al Gore, which was very recent. He said that fossil fuel companies seem to be better at capturing politicians than they do at capturing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And this was a sarcastic comment about how we pay huge subsidies to fossil fuel companies, about a trillion dollars per year of taxpayers' money around the world. But now many governments in the US and the UK are saying, oh, well, we're going to pay oil and gas companies to actually capture the carbon dioxide that they're producing. Therefore, we basically pay them and subsidize them to pollute. And then we pay them to undo the pollution, which seems a little bit contrary to logic, particularly as we know that renewables are cheaper, they're more secure, and you can make sure that the price of electricity is standardized so your population doesn't go through these huge shocks of price rises that have happened over the last year because of the volatile nature of the global fossil fuels. So we're seeing this right-wing, industry-led backlash. And I feel this is because of a communication issue, because all the solutions that we have to climate change actually make things better. If we move to renewables away from fossil fuels, suddenly those 8 million people that die prematurely from fossil fuel-caused air pollution won't die. That's a huge saving, both in terms of life, in terms of well-being, but also health service money around the world. So we make a huge saving there. 
So for me, what is really weird is when I propose all the solutions in the book, but also publicly, people look at me and go, well, shouldn't we be doing that anyway? Even if it wasn't for climate change, shouldn't we be shifting to a more plant-based diet because it's healthier for us? We're going to live longer. It's better for our kids. Shouldn't we be doing that anyway? I go, yes. And it's good for the planet. So for me, there is this real fear-mongering about climate change and net zero. It's going to cost us more. No, it's going to save us money. And hard-nosed economists have shown this. They just haven't stuck their head above the power pit and screamed it very loudly. So people do feel they're going to get it in the neck because certain governments are not going to make oil companies pay. They're not going to make business pay to clean up their mess. They're going to make the individual. And that's where individuals get really worried and quite rightly step back and go, oh, but we didn't cause this. I asked Mark how we could combat this fear-mongering about climate change and how we could bring humanity together to help save the planet. If we're going to solve climate change and some of the other huge issues around the world, which include environmental degradation, pollution, poverty, global security, we need to look at the tripartite, which is that intersection between governments, corporations and individuals. I'll start with governments. Governments are incredibly powerful, but they don't know it. So the first thing that governments can do is they can subsidize particular products or particular ways of generating energy. They can actually use tax, tax in a certain way to move companies' behavior and move individuals' behavior. They can regulate, which most people in the Anglo-American world don't like, big in Europe, but not necessarily here. But you can regulate to prevent pollution, things like that. You can lead and you can also make sure there's innovation. Great new modern economists such as Mariana Mazzucato clearly show that most of the entrepreneurship, most of the innovation actually comes through government funding and support. You may say, hang on, is that true? Well, governments fund universities, they fund companies to do research. And the example I use is we had a vaccination for COVID within six to eight months of COVID being recognized as a major issue. Now, that wasn't because private companies suddenly threw huge amounts of money at it. Absolutely not. It is because governments have been funding medical research since the 1950s. If the taxpayer knew how much money we've been funding medical research, they'd be absolutely shocked. But it's because they fund that, we have all that information ready to set to challenges. And the same with climate change. We have all the technology there, we just need to put it into practice. So government's very important, but corporations are incredibly important because they're the dynamo, they're the engine, they're the innovators, and they're the ones that actually can make things work. I spend a lot of time working with companies, whether they are startups all the way up to billion-dollar companies. And I've had the pleasure of meeting many CEOs and talking to them. Now, CEOs are a complicated bunch. They have lots of different motivation, but one of them is usually keeping their shareholders happy and making a profit. Absolutely fine. I've run a company. I understand that. But then when you sit down with them, you go, yeah, absolutely. But guess what? Climate change is a major threat to your company. It's going to affect your supply chain. It's going to have regulation. And it's going to have influence on what people want to buy and how they buy it. So you need to take it on board. Oh, okay. Also, if you look at your carbon footprint and you start to actually engage with that and start to reduce it, you reduce costs. Always do. And also, you're managing your business in a way that you understand how it's operating. And if you engage your workforce into this sustainability, what happens is you have happier workers, your 
ability to retain and recruit people increases markedly. Because the interesting thing is the new generation coming through, they want good jobs, they want nice salaries, but they also want to work for an ethical and moral company. They want their cake and eat it. Whether you agree or disagree with that, that's what they want. And so therefore, for companies to attract the best talent, you've got to go down that route. So different CEOs, some of them will start to go down this sustainability and climate change route because they believe, some because they care, some because they care about their bottom line. And I'll let you into a secret, some because their kids have come home and said, Daddy, Mummy, what are you doing to save our planet? At which point they've gone, ah, yeah, hmm, hmm, right, I'm going to work tomorrow, (laughs) I'm going to sort this out. Then the last part of this whole puzzle is individuals. Individuals are much more powerful than they realize. And unfortunately, you never know how much influence you've had. So firstly, individuals vote. So you can vote for parties that actually care about the planet and care about the economy. Because $10 trillion is already spent every year in the green economy. That's one in $10. It is the greatest growth. It is where jobs are being created all the time. The example is there's nine and a half million green jobs in the USA. There's only 350,000 in the fossil fuel industry, of which 32,000 is in coal. So if you happen to be a president and you want to create jobs, you go down the green economy. So it's already here. But individuals then also can protest. The Fridays for Future, the actual climate change protests have been incredibly powerful in sending a multi-generational message to politicians that says, this is a concern for all citizens. It's not a particular group. It is the 90-year-olds sticking themselves to a train. It is the undergraduates and the school children saying, I want a better future. But individuals also make up government. They're the people in power. They also make up companies. I've had the great pleasure of working with Sopristeria, a huge French international company, has a turnover of about five and a half billion euros. Over the last five to eight years, because of conversations in middle management, they've gone from being so-so about the environment to actually winning awards at the Carbon Disclosure Project, having triple A rating. And they're going to go carbon neutral by 2028. Why 2028? Well, because it's two years earlier than Microsoft who said 2030. I love the competitiveness of companies which you can utilize to actually make things happen better. And of course, guess what? They have more clients. They have better clients. They have more profitability. They have happier workers. You know, tick, 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 tick. And therefore, sometimes I go into companies going, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing this anyway? Forget saving the planet. You should be doing this anyway because it's better for your business. So again, I think it's a communication thing. All the things that we are proposing to actually reduce carbon emissions and to actually have a more sustainable world, have less plastic pollution, are all good for us as individuals. It's good for us as businesses. And if you're a government, it's better for the economy. This is why some of us get really frustrated because we're looking at them going, I don't understand why you are denying. I don't understand why you think that rowing back on all of your environmental pledges is suddenly going to make your party electable. Actually, people just kind of look at you and go, you just don't care. A lot of businesses are being incredibly positive. We have things like B Corp. We have the science-based targets. We have the Carbon Disclosure Project, which are trying to bring like-minded companies together, but also showcase, giving them ratings to show how well they're doing. 
There's also a lot of legislation around the world which companies have to think about and actually apply to their companies. That also means that many companies are environmentally audited. I think this is something that people don't realize, which is when you actually put in a tender for a job, nowadays, many companies, there has to be a whole thing on their carbon footprinting, all about the sustainability of the job. This has moved forward hugely in the last sort of five years. But I don't think the British public or politicians realize that that's all going on. But the imbalance of power between the green energy and traditional fossil fuel sectors is a major obstacle to tackling climate change. One of the things that people need to realise is that the green economy is so dispersed. You have solar panel manufacturers, you have wind turbine makers, you have people making beautiful seaweed packaging. So they're disparate and they don't necessarily work together because they're in completely different businesses. Whereas the oil industry is very close-knit. We all think the oil industry is BP, Shell, and things like that. But if we take the 25 largest fossil fuel companies in the world, 19 of them are either fully owned by the state or partly owned by the state. This is because there are petrochemical states that actually rely on their export of oil and gas and coal to make their profits. Now, admittedly, in some of those countries, the profit does not go to the people, but only to the elite. So we're looking at a geopolitical problem whereby it is beholden on certain countries to hold back any change and reduction in the use of fossil fuels. And I think this is where we come unstuck, because even if all the solar panel companies in the world got together, they're not going to have the same clout as a country. This is why democracies and countries that have the power to be more influential have to step up. This is why when you have this climate change denial in the UK, in Australia, in the USA, in Canada, it is heartbreaking because we're the countries that should be leading the way to a better world and a better way of doing business. And the neoliberalist love affair with capitalism has not helped. I do not blame the economists from the Chicago School. They really thought in the 1970s that taking the training wheels off the bike of capitalism and just letting it go, no regulation, it really was going to be dynamic and lift everybody out of poverty. What they seem to fail to realize is those lessons have been learned between the wars. This is why after the Second World War, all these structures were put in place by governments to manage capitalism, to make sure that it didn't go rogue. So we now have a situation where, depending on how you do the calculations, eight of the richest billionaires in the world own the same wealth as the bottom four billion people. We have this skewed economy, which is then also feeding into wealth generation through fossil fuels. We need to actually push against that. I don't blame companies for not influencing governments, but I think we now need a groundswell of public support. We need companies to realize that they're on the same team. For me, one of the most exciting and interesting things is when the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Rishi Sunak, decided to roll back all of the ideas and all of the laws about environmentalism and actually controlling pollution in the future. The Ford Motor Company, the National Trust, and the government's own Climate Change Committee all criticize the government. So when the Ford Motor Company and the National Trust gang out together 
and tell you you're doing something wrong, that should tell politicians they have got it completely wrong. But you'll be glad to hear there are reasons to be cheerful. The first thing is that if we look globally at the politics, 90% of the world's GDP is under a net zero pledge. That's part of the international climate negotiations. And those countries have said, we will go to net zero. That is reducing their carbon emissions as much as they can. And any amount that they can't, they have to remove from the atmosphere through direct air capture or reforestation or rewilding. This is a really positive. So we've got the EU, 2050. United States, 2050. We've got China, 2060. And in India, 2070. So the whole world politics is saying, well, this is where we're going. That's the direction of travel. We also know that renewable energy is much cheaper than fossil fuel energy. It is much more secure and it is easier to maintain and it makes sure that you have a guaranteed cheap price of energy for your population. And it's exponential. The growth in solar, in offshore wind, in electric cars and batteries is all exponential. The only downside is a wonderful book by Simon Sharp, a colleague of mine at UCL, has just pointed out this is brilliant. But to get to those net zero targets, we have to do everything we're doing now. That includes reforestation, all the renewable energy and things like that five times faster. So if you take anything away from this podcast, if you're doing something really positive and good, fantastic. Just remember, do it five times faster. When governments are basically pushing back, this is madness because guess what? They should be doing more and they should be doing it five times faster. So this is my mantra. We have all the solutions. We have all the technology. We have all the ways of reducing carbon emissions. We have all the ways of actually relieving extreme poverty around the world. We have that. It's not like we have to invent new stuff. But what we have to do is do it, do it now, and then think, how can I do it five times faster? Mark Maslin, Professor of Earth System Science at University College London and author of How to Save Our Planet, The Facts. That brings us to the end of these first few episodes of Changemakers, but we'll be back in the new year. Meanwhile, my thanks to Mark for joining us this week and thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about what each of us can do to help save the planet, do read Mark's book. How to Save Our Planet, The Facts, and Mark's other books are available from all good bookshops and online. You've been listening to Changemakers with me, Katrina Oliphant, brought to you by Chrome Radio in association with The Monthly Barometer. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it and subscribe to the series wherever you get your podcasts. We wish you a happy Christmas and New Year and look forward to your joining us again in 2024.